All right, here we go. What do you think is more important, what you have done or what you haven't done? Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hey, we're going to take care of business today. This is when we're rolling into a new year. You're being just the uh, middle of November at this point, but still, we're all thinking about the new year coming, and we have a ton to share today that has to do with that because of people's concerns about rolling into the new year. Having set goals, how do you reach them? What happens if you don't reach them? Well, we're going to unpack some of that and hopefully give you some clear guidelines as to how to evaluate just what I mentioned as we started out here. What's more important, what you have done or what you haven't done? So Shannon asked, I think I'm on the verge of a big mindset breakthrough, but I need help. That's where we're going to unpack some of that goal setting angst. Someone asked, what recommendations do you have for my upcoming stay interview? Now, that may be a concept that you're not familiar with. I'm going to tell you what a stay interview is and how to expect it. Is it advisable to start my own business in today's economy with rampant inflation? And then somebody wants to know, I'm, I'm considering moving to a new city and purchasing an electrical contracting business. How do I know if the price is fair? So if you're interested in buying a business, stick around. We're going to be talking about that. How do you evaluate a business? I'm retiring from the Army in two years. I want to become a life coach with a focus on spirituality. How can I start while still in the military? Okay, we're going to jump into those here. Um, our quotation for today comes from Martin Luther King Jr., who said, you can't stop a bird from landing on your head, but you can keep it from building a nest. This is one of those interesting quotations where he obviously got his inspiration from his namesake, Martin Luther, who said, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. Well, so it's pretty much a same take on that. So Martin Luther King Jr. again said, you can't stop a bird from landing on your head, but you can keep it from building a nest. Well, good advice for today, because there's some circumstances that have happened that none of us would have wished for. None of us would have brought on, you know, in our own desires. But if they're here, we just have to deal with it. But we don't have to let that bird build a nest in our hair. We don't have to let it stick around, swat it, get it off of there, go on and do what you intended to do. Our resource for today is 48days.com slash why. Now that just is a fresh look at who are you and why are you here? But we got a seven page workbook that I've developed there. It's all free. Just go to 48days.com slash why. You can pick that up, figure out what you really should be working on. What do you want to be working toward? Now, I want to talk a little bit about the goal setting. I've been talking about that a lot, and I'm not going to wear this topic out. But now that people are past the part of actually setting goals, you know, my recommendation is that you have those finished by November 14th, of course, that being 48 days before the new year starts. So we're already past that timeline now. So we've got a lot of people that are sharing their goals and their concerns about their goals. Rob says, 2022 goal setting anxiety 
Initially, I felt a sense of relief upon completing the workbook. Now, of course, the the workbook people are referring to here is just simply 48days.com slash goals. You can still grab it there. We'll keep it up. But that's what a lot of these people have already finished. He says, initially, I felt a sense of relief upon completing the workbook. Now I feel some anxiety, for lack of a better term. Did I choose the right goals? What am I forgetting? Is this really what's important to me? And he asked, is anyone else having these feelings as well? How are you dealing with it? Well, we've had a lot of sharing in the 48 Days Eagles community about these goals, some really, really good conversations going on that I wanted just to share a little tidbit of here. Now, if you're in the community, you can see what's there. We've had a lot of interaction. But Shannon says, I think I'm on the verge of a big mindset breakthrough, but I need help. I'm currently reading The Success Principles, uh, that being a book by Jack Canfield and one of the 12 that we're going to be covering in the Eagles community next year. But she says, I'm reading The Success Principles. I can finally put into words something I've been struggling with for a long time but didn't know how to express. We hear all the time we should dream big, overcome our limiting beliefs, set goals that are outside of our comfort zone and cause us to stretch, etc., We also hear all the time that we should be very concrete with our goals, including a date by which we're going to accomplish that goal. Dan says that he sets goals all the time that he only has a 50-50 chance of accomplishing, and that if his goal is something like to 10x his income this year, and at the end of the year his income has only gone up by 9x, then that's okay because it's still so much better than where he was before. Shannon says, on one level, I completely get all that. I want to believe it, act that way, feel that way when I don't quite reach these big, huge, audacious goals. But on another level, it creates a lot of conflict and turmoil from me. I could never quite put my finger on what the problem was. It just never felt right to me. It wasn't a feeling of fear, but rather a feeling of it being wrong. Then while reading the success principles this morning, it suddenly dawned on me what was causing the conflict. It comes down to keeping my agreements and the importance of keeping my agreements to myself. So if I make a big crazy stretch goal to 10x my income this year, my mind hears that as an agreement. Then if at the end of the year, I only 9x my income, then yes, I'm still a lot better off and I can be happy about that, but I still didn't keep my agreement to myself. And I feel disappointed in myself and a lack of trust and integrity with myself for not keeping that agreement. If I let myself slide on that final 10%, then where do I draw the line the next time? In my mind saying it's okay that I only kept 90% of my agreement with myself is like saying that my internal trust and integrity can be bought off or compromised. She says, what am I missing? How do I resolve this internal conflict? How do I keep my agreements, integrity, and ability to trust myself without constantly playing it safe and limiting myself to things I know I have a really good shot at accomplishing? So I love, love what Shannon has laid out here. And I know it's a, a conflict that a lot of people have concerns with. And I talk right, readily about the fact that you know, I set big goals. And I know in advance, I'm probably not going to hit all those. I set them big, so they do stretch me. I don't want set goals that are so low that I'm going to 100% accomplish them. But what Shannon is pointing out is a realistic concern. Well, if you set them with already knowing that you're not likely to hit it, is it really even a goal that you're committed to? 
a very legitimate question. And she got tons of feedback in the Eagles community. Ashley says, I love this, this Shannon, and my confidence has certainly suffered from breaking agreements with myself. And then Shannon came back with another lengthy input about this root issue, the key root issue being a mindset issue. This one underlies everything else. When I recognized this one, it was like a fog that I didn't even know was there. It was cleared away, and I was staring at a giant wall with a bright light on it. She says, I used to think I was just being too hard on myself, being a perfectionist, beating myself up for no reason. Of course, that only made me feel worse. I'm starting to be able to see and appreciate the progress I've made, even if it wasn't the progress I wanted. And I'm definitely one to point out the progress for others. Deep down in my heart of hearts, I still know that despite the progress, I didn't meet the agreements I made. Subconsciously, I start managing my expectations. I'll hear one thing and then scale it back to what I think is more reasonable expectation based on my previous experience. But that erodes trust and belief, maybe ever so slightly, but it's still there and it adds up. That's part of what I'm struggling against with this. Okay, that's much more than I usually share from somebody's question. She didn't even pose it so much as a question, but just kind of share in her heart. But it's so important, and I know a whole lot of you are probably identifying with that. Yeah, how do you how do you set a goal? Let's just take something real tangible. Well, I've, one of my goals is that I'm going to be able to jog around our community. There's one road that goes around our community. It's 3.7 miles long. I haven't jogged in years because I have some knee problems. My knees aren't that great. So I've always used a treadmill, ridden a bicycle, or just walk. But I'm finding that really I think that I can strengthen my knees so that I really can jog. So that's one of my goals for this year is to be able to jog around our community here, 3.7 miles. And I've been experimenting with that. I mean, this being November, I mean, you know me, by the time January gets here, I'll probably be able to do half of that. I mean, that's the way, that's why I like to set goals in advance so I can be working on them. And a lot of you have shared that already as well. Somebody said that their goal that they set when they set their goals was to lose 30 pounds next year. And he's already lost 20. I mean, how cool is that? And I love that. So if I have that goal to jog around there, and it's 3.7 miles. What if at the end of the year, I've only been able to jog 3.5 miles? Well, let's see, I get kind of excited just thinking about that because I'm looking at what I've gained based on where I was. I would not see that as a failure. So a lot of this is mindset. But now having, having set that up as we're talking about here, do I really believe that I can make the entire 3.7 miles? Yeah, I do. Absolutely. But if I'm running and in July, I blow a knee out, I realize I've really overshot my ability to uh, make it that far. I'm not going to be devastated. I'm not going to feel like a failure. I mean, I just like having big things that I shoot for. I just, I love the challenge of shooting for things that I've never done before. And I've got a whole lot of other things identified and you probably do too. Now, I want to kind of wrap this up here. Um, 
Well, I mean, I've got, there's so many of you who have shared here. I love the things you're sharing that you're going to do. We actually had a contest where we had people share just one thing in each of the seven areas of life that they wanted to accomplish. And it's a marvelous sharing in there. We've got a whole bunch of contest winners and we'll be doing some other things that I'll announce coming up as well to kind of reward you for having those big goals that you're shooting for. But here's how I want to kind of wrap this up. It's addressed in a new book, incidentally, written by Dan Sullivan called The Gap and the Gain. The Gap and the Gain. And it addresses exactly what we're talking about here. People who are frustrated by not achieving exactly what they want to achieve. I use sometimes as an example, you know, somebody's making $60,000. They're in a sales position. They have an open-ended kind of opportunity to make more if they sell more. So let's say their goal is to hit $100,000. That's a big stretch from 60 to 100. But let's just say that it is that. Using Shannon's kind of example here, what if at the end of the year that guy realizes or gal realizes they're only at $90,000? They've gone from 60 to 90, but they didn't hit 100. Well, again, wow, you can be upset because you didn't com- didn't finish out the actual goal as you identified it, but the increase should make you feel pretty good about yourself. And that's what Dan Sullivan addresses in this little book. It's just a little book, The Gap and the Gain. You can find it on Amazon. I, I got a copy recently. I recommended it to everybody in my mastermind. It was 99 cents for the Kindle version. I'm not sure if it still is or not, but The Gap and the Gain. But it was... He wrote it to address this issue. People who were frustrated because always staying in a sense of unhappiness because they hadn't yet reached that big goal that they set for themselves. But here's what Dan recommends. If you measure your, your progress or measure your, golly, your, your satisfaction with the fact that you haven't yet hit the big goal that you set, you'll always live in a state of unhappiness because you're, you're never quite there. I mean, if I was looking always at what I still had to go to get to these big goals that I set, yeah, I'd always be unhappy with myself, always be discontent. Since a true wager, way to measure yourself is by looking from where you are back to where you started and seeing all the progress you've made. Measuring this way leads to happiness. Now, that's a major difference. So that's my recommendation. And if there's nothing, one, one thing that's a takeaway from today's episode, I want it to be that. Be happy with the gain. Don't be frustrated with the gap. There's always going to be that gap. There should be that gap. Again, I, I want there to be things that I have not yet achieved. I don't want to hit my goals in June and then think I can just coast for the rest of the year. I want things that are going to stretch me. But I do look back and recognize the gain. The gain is what keeps me motivated. The gain is what gives me a sense of fulfillment and accomplishment and achievement. The gain is what makes me happy rather than me always being frustrated because I'm not yet totally at the goal I've set. All right. Hey, I hope that's helpful. My gosh, that's that's a lot of time spent on one thing, but I felt like it was so important right now here we are having just set those goals as we're getting ready to roll into the new year i want you to be anticipating the gain that you're going to make the gain that you can make between now and the beginning of the year but then again starting in january the gain that you can make from then to may or july or august or whatever 
be, be, be happy about the gains that you're making, not just frustrated about what you have yet to go to get to that ultimate goal. Now, another that there's some things happening right now that I really wanted to jump into. I talked recently about the fact that in August, there were 4.3 million people who quit their jobs in America. We know that's a challenge and it continues to be 4.3 million who quit their jobs in August. Then we had September, October, and you think, well, gee, that was a big surge, and certainly we're back back to normal now. No, in October, it was 4.4. 4.4 million people quit their jobs. And the irony is that there are 10.7 million jobs open right now. And you know how critical this is. I, I popped over to one of my favorite Mexican restaurants the other day for lunch, on a Monday, I mean, I know their hours. I know the owners. I know their hours. They were closed. Hey, what's up with that? A sign in the door. Due to critical staffing shortage, they are now reducing their hours. They're closed three days a week. I mean, how sad is that? Well, anyway, so the, so there's that. Now, here's another part that's hard to get our head around. There's a recent study by Goldman Sachs. They're predicting that by the end of next year, 2022, we're going to have an unemployment rate of 3.5%. That's really, really low. I mean, that would be a 50-year low to get down that low because we consider even a 5% to be full employment. There's always going to be at least 5% of the people who are in between opportunities, you know, looking, transitioning, whatever, however we want to frame frame that. But they're saying it's going to be down to 3.5%. How in the world do we get our head around all these crazy numbers? People leaving their jobs, which you think would increase unemployment dramatically? No, it's not. We have an inordinate number of jobs that are open, and the people aren't just rushing into those jobs. There's so many things that don't really make sense here. Another thing that we have that is exploding is this anti-work mentality. I mean, there are people who just say, I don't want to work anymore. So there are those 4.4 million who quit their jobs. They're saying, I don't want to work. How in the world does that make sense? Well, there's a real movement out there to just kind of be off the radar. I mean, we're talking about being like a, gee, some of the countries in Africa, you know, that I've visited where a whole lot of what goes on is not even in the system, so to speak. I mean, their businesses, the way there's no taxes being paid. You know, people are making money that they aren't reporting. You know, there's no real infrastructure to make the economy work. It's all kind of just independent. Well, we aren't going to go there, but a lot of people are saying, gee, they just don't want to work anymore. There's an article. Now, I'm, what I'm going to do, I didn't mean to spend this much time on it because I don't, ha- I, I don't have the time to devote to it that I want to because this is an important trend that we're seeing, and I want to address this anti-work mentality. There are people out there, there was a recent article, and I'll tell you a little bit more about it next week when we dig into this a little bit more, from a guy, 53 years old, and he says, I don't really want to work anymore. I don't want to have any meetings, no deadlines, no goals, no quarter, no seminar. I don't want none of that stuff no more. He says, I really don't have any expenses. I don't need any money. I can survive without money. When you dig into the details, this is a 53-year-old guy He's divorced, he has three kids, and he's moved back back home on his mother's property, has a little trailer on the back of her house. Well, yeah, I guess you don't need any money if you go back home and mooch off mommy at 53 years old. 
I mean, that's ludicrous. That's not a responsible way to, now, can we live simply? Can you live on less? Yeah, maybe so. And I don't mind if you want to move in that direction. I mean, I want to live simply. I don't want to be opulent, high consumer. I want to, you know, know how to be responsible in the environment that I live in. But this whole attitude people have where they think they're just not going to work anymore. They're just going to kind of live off the system. You know, people are expecting things to be free enough to be provided for them, even down to the point we're talking about universal basic income or UBM, universal basic mobility, meaning that people ought to have access to free transportation. Really? I mean, if you if you go down and you expect to have just the basics all provided for you, somebody's making money. Somebody has to pay for that. It doesn't work unless you're just mooching off the resources of other people who have accepted the responsibility of making money. Hey, well, boy, I, I don't, I'm not even going to move any farther down that. Okay. Well, next week I will though. Next week I'm going to dig into more of this whole mentality that seems to be growing where people, that's not just young kids, it is the 50 year olds as well. who are saying, hey, I'm not going to work anymore. There's enough kind of basic support out here. I'm just going to mooch off the system. Hey, I'm going to take odds with that, and we'll talk about that more next week. Hey, these are real-life questions that you all are sharing. If you got questions, we got our new system for how to capture those. As you know, we've changed rather than the old email address. If you now go to 48days.com slash askdan, you'll see there a form that you can ask your question there. 48days.com slash askdan. I love having those questions come in. love jumping into those each week. Uh, just like this one from Keith who says, uh, Dan, I don't believe you've covered this topic before. The senior director in my department said she will be scheduling state interviews with each of us in the near future. Being in higher education most outside opportunities pay much better, which has led to many leaving our division. Currently, I'm not challenged at work, and I'm more than ready to move on to my next position, but nothing has opened up internally. Well, I have let this be known to my boss that it's fallen on deaf ears. This should be my opportunity to ask for more from the boss's boss. What recommendations do you have? Thanks, Keith. Okay, this term, now now Keith is in higher education, this term state interviews may be kind of new for some of you. With so many people leaving their jobs, the 4.4 million that left in October, companies are saying, we got to figure this out. So they're having what are called state interviews. You want your employees to stay long term. So why don't you ask them directly what keeps them there? You know, give them a safe place to share how you can better support them, how to develop them. Now, this is not like a performance interview, which are typically conducted by the managers You know, at the end of the year. How did you perform? Did you hit the quotas we set for you? No, stay interviews are just a direct conversation. And it's usually between the HR director and the employee. Not really an evaluation of the employee's work, but just an open discussion about how they feel about the company. So they may ask things, you know, what, what motivates you to stay here? What do you enjoy about working here? What demotivates you? you know, what keeps you from doing your best work? And what would be a reason for you to actually walk out the door? You know, how much time are you spending improving your performance with what you're doing here? Do you have best friends with people that you work with here? 
know, those are the kind of questions that are likely to be asked at a stay interview and very, very becoming very common. Don't be surprised if your company asks you in for a stay interview because, you know, they are trying to figure out how to keep people from leaving. So Keith, in, in doing this, you know, being in higher education, I know there's a lot of frustration and the pay typically isn't great. A lot of people that I know who are professors, teachers, academicians have other businesses that are creating income that is more than what they're generating from their salaries. So it's kind of a both and rather than an either or, but people who are trying to make it just there are usually looking for other opportunities. Just be candid about what you like and what you don't like. But what you need to do for yourself is be clear on your own goals. What do you want your life to look like three years from now? And if you look back three years from where you are now to where you, you know, where you were then three years ago, how has your life changed? I mean, that's a pretty good barometer of where you're going. If you look back three years and nothing has really changed, we've got a good, pretty good predictor about what your life is going to look like three years from now. If you are growing, you're changing, you have new goals, new aspirations, does the environment you're in now allow you to make those kind of moves forward? You know, if not, can there be some provision made within internally, as you say, in your academic environment for that? You know, academic environments tend to be pretty static. They tend to be pretty restricted. They tend to be have clear boundaries in what's available there. So if you can find some a, a place, you know, the place where you are, if you can find that they are really open to the idea of stretching and doing new things, you know, fantastic. If not, then you probably are in the process of creating your own exit from that. So a stay interview should be good for everybody involved. Sounds great. Brian says, Dan, I'm considering starting a small business from home. The business would be CNC router business, making custom signs, wall hangings, et cetera. My concern is that in today's economy and rampant inflation, is this advisable? Would people still buy my product when they are attempting to keep food on the table? Thank you in advance for your assistance. I genuinely appreciate, appreciate it. Well, what you want to do I mean, I think it's absolutely a great idea to do that. I mean, for one thing, it takes you out of the environment that so many people are walking away from. I mean, just whatever you choose to start a small business in your home, that's why we have these millions of people quitting and they aren't showing up on the unemployment rolls because they're just figuring out things they can do on their own. I mean, there's a whole lot of that. It's a healthy kind of return to the kind of businesses that our country was formed with initially anyway, you know, so I, I don't think it's a unhealthy sign at all. So there's a lot of people doing what you're talking about doing here, Brian. And would people continue to buy, you know, custom signs, wall hangings and so on? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's, when we see the spending, there's, there's almost a, a pent up desire to spend. I mean, in as much as it seems like so many people quitting their jobs and such a kind of uh, the, the unexpected pressures we've had would be an automatic downturn in income and discretionary income and all that doesn't seem to be that at all. People are eager to spend money, looking for ways to spend. We're anticipating this holiday season to be a banner year for people spending money. So, yeah, they're doing that. You know, 
No question about that. However, I would put in a caveat here. Incidentally, if you're a listener and you're wondering, what in the world is a CNC machine? Well, CNC is simply an acronym, and it means Computer Numerical Controlled. I think is what it stands for, computer numerical control. But it just means a machine is set up to do something automatically again and again and again. I have a friend who has a machine that actually uses water as a laser and it cuts metal. So it makes metal signs, decorative things. Her primary customer is Disney World. I mean, they purchase hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of her products. With what you're talking about here, you can do signs, the kind of things that you're talking about. But I'd encourage you to have kind of a core product that you're producing on the back end as well. Something that you're producing where it's not just dependent on direct consumer, well, initially at least, but it doesn't mean on commissioned orders, I guess is what I'm talking about. Get something that you can just crank out. So if you don't have orders for somebody needing a particular sign, you're going to produce a hundred of a product today anyway. So that could be you know, if, if you look up, there's a, a site that I went to just to, in response to your question. There's a site for the 50 best CNC router business ideas and opportunities for 2022. And that's pretty directly addressed to your question. 50 best CNC router business ideas and opportunities for 2022. So you can pro- find it there. It, it starts with uh, profitableventure.com. So you can look at you know, making toys, uh, canoe paddles, um, aluminum door and windows, uh, depending on what kind of a CNC machine you've got, treehouse kits, snowboards, headboards, dollhouse manufacturing, patio furniture, um, golly, awning manufacturing, iron sculptures, mailboxes, store display cases. There's there's a lot of real good ideas there. I would encourage you to go and look at those. But yeah, have a balance in your business where you're doing the custom work, where somebody comes in and wants a sign done, but where you're not dependent on just that, where you also are looking for these other things you can manufacture on an ongoing basis. And when you, you know, check around in your town, I mean, look at where there would be businesses that would be ongoing, regular customers of yours. They could do work for them. Talk to them. See if they are, in fact, potential customers before you even start the business. Brandon says, Dan, I'm considering moving to a new city and purchasing an electrical contracting business. Currently, I work in sales, project management of irrigation equipment and electrical projects. All right, so you, Brian, you've got background in electrical contracting. You understand that. So you're looking at the electrical contracting business. Is it worth purchasing a business? There's a sales price on an existing business, $475,000. Gross sales are $300,000 yearly. Three work vehicles and inventory. How do you determine what a business is worth? Now, the, the business is described as such, established electrical contracting business for sale with exceptional reputation in beautiful Sedona, Arizona. Um, voted one of the most beautiful places to live in the USA today. Business includes two vans and a truck plus inventory, all phone numbers, trade names included, multiple general contractor accounts, including extensive book of business, gross income, approximately 300000 a year. Owner may carry a good down payment. And real estate is collateral. So, so, so let's just look at this. I, I love this. I love these kind of opportunities. 
I mean, yes, I'm a big believer in the potential of buying a business if it makes sense. So how do you evaluate a business? There are really three kind of established ways to buy a business. One is an earnings multiple. So you look at how much money the company is bringing in. I'll expand on that here a little bit more. That's certainly one way and the most popular way. You can just do comparable sales. It's like doing... When you buy a house, they always do what are called comps. So they look at what of other houses that are similar to this one, what have they sold for in the last couple of years? So comparable sales, you can do that with a business as well. A little trickier because there's so many factors involved, but you can still do that. And then another way is just simply to look at asset valuation. So in this case, you would really want to look at the value of the physical assets. I mean, what about those, uh, the vans, Let's see, voter, two vans and a truck. Yeah, what are those? What inventory do they have? What are the tools that they have? All of those things. I mean, you may be approaching 100000 with those. If, you know, I, I don't know, but that's certainly something that you want to know because anything beyond that, the value of the vans, the truck, the inventory, the tools, and so on, anything beyond that then is considered goodwill. You know, the value of the brand, the reputation, the client list, and so on. Now, I bought a body shop one time years ago for $4,000. Everything, $4,000. Now, I wasn't interested in continuing the body shop as a business. All I was looking at was the equipment. So I pulled everything out. Everything, I just pulled everything out and shut the door. I mean, I wasn't interested in the business. It wasn't really profitable. So I was essentially just buying the assets. $4,000, that was it. So one of the things in there was the three, a three-phase air compressor that ran the whole shop. As I recall, I sold that for $3,000. And then I started cleaning up all the rest of the tools and equipment. Now, they were nasty because it was a body shop. But I kept a ton of the tools for the auto accessories business that I had at the time and then continued selling what I need. I mean, I think, I, I think I've made over $4,000 just selling things back out. Plus, I had a whole lot of equipment that I was going to use in the business that I had. So in that case, I wasn't really buying a business. I was just buying the inventory and tools. Now, what you want to do with this business, you want to see the last three years tax returns, not just the owner's profit and loss statements. I mean, he can make those say anything he wants to. You want to look at the IRS tax returns that'll show exactly what legally he's saying the business is making. Now, interestingly, with entrepreneurs, it's not uncommon for them to try to get their taxable income as low as possible. I mean, that's typically what entrepreneurs do. But, and then when they go to sell it, they'll say, well, I really made, you know, five times that. I just, you know, wanted my books to show not much profit so I wouldn't have to pay a lot of tax. I lived out of the business, you know, kind of fudged expenses and all. Well, if that's true, you still go by the tax returns. I mean, you, you that's really what you want to see. And if this person shows that they made, you know, they netted $30,000 a year. There's no way in the world the business is worth 475000 because the equipment probably isn't going to be worth anywhere near that. Now, typically, a business sells for around eh, 0.6 times its annual revenue. But there's so many different kind of businesses out there. 
that's really hard to see. But if you look at the last three years and look at net, now gross revenue, you know, the $300,000 coming in really doesn't mean anything because a business like this, electrical contracting, you know, I would suspect that it's only netting, you know, maybe maybe 30% of that. If that, let's say it's netting 20%. So the net profit is $60,000. You know, with that, again, the business is not going to be worth four seventy-five. If you take inventory and then do a multiple of even two times the annual net, you're going to get a figure that's much lower than that. So you have to look at, you know, how much repeat business is there? What are these contracts that he has? You know, what's the growth been like over the last three years? Who are the competitors? Or have there been new competitors that have come up in this area? Because you're you're talking about a geographic area in this kind of a business, not something that you do nationally, but geographic. You know, what are, are there any employees? Will they stay on? Or we'll have to start from scratch there. So those are things that have to be looked at when you're looking at a, a physical bricks and mortar business like this. And the business valuations have, have really been torqued a lot. And he's like, we look at a business like this that has good solid revenue in a good physical business. And then we look at something like Airbnb, where there's really no equipment, there's no buildings that they own. And with their recent IPO that they did, they now have a valuation at just over $100 billion. Joe Gibbia and Chesney, the two guys who started that, I mean, their personal net worth is like $13 billion each. Billion. And they have a business where there's, there's no vans, there's no trucks, there's no equipment, there's no tools. It's just a concept. So the idea of business valuation, I mean, you, you'll probably want to get, uh, it's interesting this guy does not have a broker, as it seems he does not. If he really had a, a regular business, it seems he'd just list it with a broker because they do know how to go after buyers, know how to evaluate. So you got some homework to do on this one to be comfortable with any kind of a price when you start talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. Dustin says, I'm retiring from the army in, a, in two years. I want to become a life coach, influencer with a focus on spirituality. How can I start? Well, still in the military. Well, this is a great time to be a coach. In one of the meetings that I've had this week, we talked about the idea that we're, we've got this um, social isolation that has left people feeling so lonely. Um, in a new book, that I've read titled You're Invited by John Levy. He says, we currently have an incredible opportunity to connect with people in a meaningful way. We are facing an epidemic of loneliness, the kind we've never known as a species. A, con a study conducted by health service provider Cigna found that nearly half of Americans report sometimes are always feeling alone or left out. In fact, the younger a person was, the more likely they were to express loneliness the groups most affected by loneliness are Gen Z, those just entering the workforce, and millennials. These hyper-connected, internet-using, texting, social media posting generations may be more digitally connected than any before, but they are also more isolated. The fact is that digital relationships don't make up for the person-to-person -person contact. A separate study found that 22% of millennials in the United States say they have no friends, and 30% say they are always 
lonely. This is a rate twice as many as baby boomers, where only 15% say they're always lonely. Okay, now that's, that, that may seem like a tangent, but it's really not because people are looking for coaching to give meaning and purpose to their life. And when, the, when they lack relationships, as so many do right now, they're really primed for coaching. I did another quick um, research just a minute ago. And I mean, just before I started, started the podcast recording here, research shows that 40% of pastors have considered leaving the ministry in the last three months. Over 70% of pastors experience loneliness and say they have no close friends they can trust with personal matters. 70% have a lower self-image now than when they first joined the ministry. So, wow. I mean, I could go on and on. The reason for coaching? Yeah. A lot of people are not in corporate environments. We, all those people that are doing something on their own, they need coaching. They need somebody to come around them to help guide, help open them up to new opportunities, ideas, seeing new directions that they're not seeing on their own. I mean, all those things increase the number of opportunities for coaches. So now, coaching, I mean, if you're coming out of the military, incidentally, just, just a comment, I'm not going to go down this uh, deeply at all, but so a lot of people coming out of the military say they want to coach those who are coming out of the military. That's a really unique challenge. I've worked with a lot of people, a lot of coaches who became frustrated with that as their goal, their desire to work with people coming out of the military. We, we got a coaching request just this week. Wow. And I mean, it was really poignant about how dissatisfied this gentleman is. He was 54 years old, unmarried, but he's unhappy at his work. He's always been unhappy at his work after his military career. He's had disappointing experiences with coaches. He thinks coaches just want to get your money. You know, he wants somebody to really walk him through, you know, where he needs to go. But there's a long, long pattern here. And it's it got a red flag, a lot of red flags on it. It's not something that I'm I'm drawn to and saying, hey, I want to work with this guy. When somebody has that kind of a mindset and has been so transparent, even in just a brief information profile he filled out about how he's always blaming, pointing fingers, looking at somebody else's taking having responsibility for his situation. Wow, that's tough. That that's not something I can change in forty eight days, you know. And I want to work with people who are highly motivated for change, and we're going to walk through that process. It's tough with people who have come out of the military. Quite frankly, I mean they're they're not used to paying for what they need or want. They are used to having a whole lot of structure and guidance to walk them through what they're going to do when they're going to get up and go to bed and stand up, sit down. That's not what coaching typically allows. Now we have, fortunately, we have people who have a real heart for that and understand it, the dynamics, the mindset, the challenges far better than I do. And fortunately, we have people like that to refer to, but be careful about focusing all of your coaching, should that be your desire, just on people coming out of the military. I would encourage you to have a broader scope of potential clients that you work with and reserve maybe 10% of your work for that particular area because otherwise i think that you're going to be you're going to wonder if you made the right choice about becoming a coach now that being said again that may sound biased and 
may alarm some of you to, for me to have that approach, but that's been based on years and years of just observation and experience. What I would encourage you to do here in what, what you're talking about, Dustin, in wanting to position, position yourself as a coach, can you do that? Absolutely. Here's some suggestions for you. Read the book, The Prosperous Coach by Rich Litvin, L-I-T-V-I-N, probably the most popular coaching book out there right now. Read also Million Dollar Coaching by Alan Weiss, W-E-I-S-S. He updates that every couple of years, Million Dollar Coaching. It's a wonderful resource for how to leverage that and do well from a business standpoint, do well financially. Um, I'd encourage you to explore spiritual direction training. If you want that to be a focus, there's some wonderful programs out there that really walk you through with having that as a focus. That's a really, that's different than life coaching, career coaching. So there are different kind of specifics that you can narrow down into, which I certainly encourage you to do. I also would encourage you to go through our basic course. It's very inexpensive. It's a course that Ashley and I have done with videos and walking through the basic foundation of coaching so that you understand two things. One, the psychodynamics of coaching, you know, how to ask questions, how to build in accountability, how to walk with somebody on an ongoing basis and so on. And then number two, how to understand the business of coaching. So how to understand, again, the practice of the psychodynamics of coaching. And number two, how to understand the business. Because we encounter a lot of people who have been trained in the psychodynamics of coaching, but they don't know how to run a business. They don't know how to generate money. I mean, I know people have all kinds of coaching credentials behind their name and they, you know, don't generate two nickels in a week. You know, that that's really sad. It breaks my heart. That's why in our coaching mastery program, we really focus on how to build a business. But if you go and I'll put this in the show notes, but if you go to 48 days, eagles.com slash C W E coaching with excellence, that's a direct link to our coaching with excellence. Just that basic course that we have that most people start with 48 days, eagles.com slash C W E. You can, you can study and, and here's, some of what you're going to get in that course. I mean, you, you can just get a clear assessment. Is coaching right for you? You know, how to know when you're ready to launch your own coaching business. Can you make money coaching? How to set up your coaching fees, how to set up a client information profile. I mean, those are the kind of things that you'll find in there. Now I see that you're a brand new Eagle Dustin. Welcome. Delighted to have you. You're going, you're already in a community where there's a whole lot of coaches. You can go to the coaching topic from our homepage. If you're on the 48 Days Eagles homepage, just up on the the top left side there, you can see all the topics. Click on coaching. You're going to see a whole lot of content created specifically for coaches. You can post questions about coaching. Our Dean of Coaching, Giovanna Ellison, will respond along with a whole lot of other experienced coaches in there, like Michael McGreevy, Marianne Renner, Golly Mark Ross. Teresa McCoy, I go on and on, but certainly jump in there and take advantage of the resources that we've got there. And you'll be more than ready two years from now. That's a great window of opportunity for you to be fully up to speed, ready to go to walk right out and into a very profitable practice of coaching. All right, boy, jump through a lot there. Next week, again, I'm going to jump into these weird things that are happening. People quitting jobs, jobs available everywhere. Unemployment is pretty low. What's up with that? This anti-work thing. Are you kidding me? How is that? How is that possible to think you're not going to work? 
crazy ideas. We're going to unpack some of those next week. Just kind of an overview of what we talked about here today. I want you to measure your goal achievement by looking at where you are back to where you started, seeing all the progress you've made. That's how you measure your goals. Welcome a stay interview to express what you like and don't like about your current position. Now's a great time to buy or start your own business. If you want to coach, choose a specific area, become an expert in that area. Again, submit your questions. Just go to 48days.com or website, 48days.com slash askdan. It'll take you right to that form. Hey, thanks for being engaged here. Thanks for being part of this growing community. I appreciate so much your, your questions, your input here, the things you are going through that you share openly with all of us. Thanks for being open to growing and for being a powerful force for making the world a better place and for believing without a shadow of a doubt that we can, you can, we can find or create work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable.